This is DW News live from Berlin. Russian President Vladimir Putin speaks out on the standoff over Ukraine. He says the U.S. is ignoring Moscow's security concerns, but signals Russia is ready for another round of negotiations. Also coming up, the situation is under control, says President Ambalo of Guinea-Bissau after a coup attempt in the West African country. He says drug traffickers could be to blame, but questions are growing over what really happened. Athletes are preparing to go for gold at the Winter Olympics in Beijing, but political issues and the ongoing pandemic are causing headaches for organizers. And sell them, sterilize them, or save them. The dilemma over what to do with the dozens of hippos first brought to Colombia by drug lord Pablo Escobar. I'm Sumiso Muskanda. Glad you could join us. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the U.S. and its allies of ignoring Moscow's security concerns in his first public remarks on the standoff over Ukraine in weeks. He said the West was using Ukraine to hinder Russia's development. Putin signaled he was ready to continue negotiations, but so far neither side has been willing to budge on their positions. For weeks, he has left the talking to others. But now, President Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of trying to drag Russia into conflict. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Across the border in Kiev, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson offered a show of support to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Johnson warned that war would be a lose-lose outcome. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And... Uh, it, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine is not completely relying on diplomacy to protect them. President Zelensky announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces by 100,000 professional soldiers. In a video released just hours before Boris Johnson's visit, soldiers tested rocket artillery systems just north of the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia invaded and annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Both sides are preparing for war, while the diplomats try to make peace. Meanwhile, the Spanish newspaper El País has published documents it says are confidential letters sent by the U.S. and the NATO alliance to Russia. The leaked documents detail the U.S. and NATO's formal response to a list of Moscow's demands, chief among them that NATO rule out admitting Ukraine to the security alliance. They shed more light on the high-stakes diplomacy taking place behind the scenes, including potential nuclear disarmament and trust-building agreements. 
And for more on this, we can go over to Terry Schultz, who's reporting for us in Brussels. Hi, Terry. So what stands out to you from these leaked documents? Are there any uh, clear differences between the U.S. and NATO responses? Hi, Sumi. Uh, the, the first thing that stood out to me was just how similar the documents are to exactly what we were told were in these letters. Both NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg and U.S. officials had given public statements saying that this is how they responded to Russia. And I'm not saying I didn't believe them, but I'm still struck by just how much we did know about what these letters were and therefore why they were kept classified. Um, the NATO letter is just two pages long and quite general, while the U.S. response is four pages because the U.S. has more details uh, with which to respond. It has missiles, which NATO doesn't. And Russia asked more of the United States. So the U.S. letter talks about what the U.S. is willing to do if Russia reciprocates, including going back to arms control agreements that have fallen by the wayside, um, limiting and, and being more transparent about, about troop movements, which Russia does not do. I was also struck by sort of this scolding nature in the U.S. letter in particular. Um, it reminded Russia that it invaded Crimea and, and illegally annexed it, that it has troops in Ukraine, in the eastern Ukraine, which Russia denies, and also that it has troops still in Georgia and in Moldova, which were not there at the invitation of those governments. And Terry, tell us again how the Russian side has responded to these letters. Well, besides what you heard from President Putin, um, that was reiterated again in a letter from Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, which was posted on the Russian Foreign Ministry website. And it, it, it reiterates that Russia feels this, this zero-sum situation, that any reinforcement, any reassurance sent to its neighbors is uh, destabilizing for Russia. So Lavrov says once again that the West does not understand the, Russia, the Russian position um, and that uh, without a, a if the, these members, uh, members are allowed to uh, have NATO forces on their territory, that it is not acceptable to Russia. Uh, this is something where there is a clear difference of opinion that simply I don't see how it can be bridged. So taken together, the letters and the response from Russia, does this do anything to change the diplomatic state of play in this standoff? I don't think so. Again, we've heard everyone's positions publicly. What it does do is is show everyone in black and white that what President Putin says that the rush that the West basically ignored Russia's uh, Russia's proposals and, and Russia's concerns is not true because the letters address very specifically what Russia wants NATO and the U.S. to do and which are not acceptable. The other thing that I that I find interesting is that now those people in Eastern Europe who may have feared that that NATO and the U.S might be willing to compromise on their security and withdraw some of these forces and these reassurance measures, that's not on the table at all. DW's Terry Schultz in Brussels for us. Thank you so much. Let's get a quick roundup of some other headlines now. Pharmaceutical companies BioNTech and Pfizer are seeking emergency authorization from the U.S. for a vaccine developed for children under the age of five. If approved, the extra low doses would be the first in the country to be made available to children above the age of six months. Authorities in Canada have broken up a convoy of trucks that was blocking a major border crossing in the U.S. Truckers staged the protests as part of a larger anti-vaccine demonstration that blocked roads in the capital, Ottawa, over the weekend. And now to some other developments in the pandemic. Germany has recorded more than 10 million coronavirus cases since the start of the pandemic. More than 200,000 new infections were logged on Tuesday alone, according to the Federal Research Institute. 
France has started easing COVID-19 restrictions despite record infection numbers in January. Mandatory outdoor mask wearing and capacity limits for large events have been dropped. And Tonga is going into lockdown after port workers delivering humanitarian aid tested positive for the virus. The remote Pacific nation was left devastated by a tsunami after an underwater volcanic eruption last month. Details are emerging after a reported coup in Guinea-Bissau. President Umaro Sissoko Mbalo has said assailants armed with machine guns attacked the government palace for hours while he and the prime minister were inside, but that the situation is now under control. The violence in Guinea-Bissau is the latest in a series of attempted military takeovers in West Africa in recent months, most of which have succeeded. Gunfire near the government seat in Bissau, forcing bystanders to seek shelter. For hours, President Umaro Sissoko Mbalo's whereabouts remained unclear, until he addressed the nation saying several security personnel had been killed in what he called a failed attack against democracy. I was in the middle of the Council of Ministers, with all the members, including the Prime Minister. We were attacked with very heavy weaponry for a duration of five hours, but now everything is under control. The African Union and the UN have both condemned the attempted coup. It is for us clear that uh, coups are totally unacceptable. We are seeing a terrible multiplication of coups, uh, and our strong appeal is for soldiers to go back to the barracks and for the constitutional order to be fully in place in the democratic context of today's Guinea-Bissau. Mbalo's opponents had accused the former army general of election fraud after his victory in the December 2019 polls. He had also recently been at odds with his prime minister following a minor government shake-up. Since independence from Portugal in 1974, Guinea-Bissau has experienced four coups and more than a dozen attempted ones. Here in Germany, debate is raging over whether a former far-right politician can return to his previous profession as a judge. Jens Meyer was a member of parliament for the far-right AFD party and, as one of the party's hardliners, was officially declared an extremist by Germany's domestic intelligence agency. He failed to win re-election to the Bundestag last year and now he wants to return to his old job as a judge. Many question whether Meyer should be allowed to do that. He used to be a member of parliament for the far-right AFD party. And recently, he was categorized as extremist by the domestic intelligence agency. Jens Maia is known for his far-right and unconstitutional statements, also while he was in parliament. Back in 2017, he was reprimanded for trivializing the Holocaust. This whole propaganda and re-education directed against us, which wanted to persuade us that Auschwitz was factually the consequence of German history, I hereby declare this cult of guilt to be over, to be finally over. In September last year, Maya was not elected for a second term in Parliament. Now, he wants to go back to his previous job as a judge in the German state of Saxony. According to the law, he's allowed to do that. 
but many believe the justice minister can stop him from doing so. His behavior during his time as a member of parliament gives reason to at least initiate disciplinary proceedings and to examine whether one can also use his statements to accuse him of having violated his official duties. This could possibly even lead to his dismissal as a judge. The Justice Ministry in Saxony doesn't think it can pursue this route. But there's another possibility, a so-called judge indictment. If judges violate the German constitution, they can be removed from office after a vote by a two-thirds majority in the state parliament and a decision by the federal constitutional court. But the hurdles are high, and the clock is ticking for those who want to stop Maya. And we have our chief political correspondent, Melinda Crane, following this story for us. Hi, Melinda. What are the chances of, of Jens Meyer returning to his job as a judge? Well, um, it's hard to say. As we heard there, the threshold is, in fact, uh, quite high. Uh, the fact is there are a few legal avenues, as the report pointed out. But precisely because uh, Germany is a country where rule of law is taken seriously, uh, the, hurdles, the hurdles are significant. Uh, the fact is one of the absolute central measures is precisely the one that that the authorities had been pursuing in regard to Meyer himself, namely that he was under observation by the Domestic Intelligence Service, uh, the Office for the Protection of the Constitution, and, uh, and uh, thereby that uh, there's awareness of the risks. And then there are measures like the ones we heard about in the report, uh, injunctions, indictments. Uh, all of those essentially represent vigilance on the part of all democratic institutions. And that absolutely is what is called for here going forward. Melinda, there also have been other reports of uh, right-wing extremists working in the judiciary as lawyers, as judges, as civil servants. How big of an issue is this in Germany? It's uh, an issue of grave importance, uh, and not only because right-wing extremists like Meyer are serving as lawyers and judges, but precisely because they're sitting in Parliament, as he did, and have a platform there for expressing views that call the very foundation of Germany's constitution, with its core provision on the inviolability of human dignity, into question. You heard his remarks there about Holocaust denial. Last week, the AFD's somewhat more moderate co-leader, Jörg Meuthen, announced that he he was quitting his post and leaving the party because it's becoming increasingly radical. Its heart beats ever more to the right, he said, and it pounds ever louder. So the party has been in disarray for some time. And in the last election, it didn't do very well in the west of Germany, precisely because of its rightward drift. But it has had resounding success in many parts of the east. And that is where Mr. Meyer would be working if he's allowed to return to his judicial post. So the AFD's radicalization risk widening the divisions between Eastern and Western Germany as a whole and deepening polarization here. Well, we saw more about the case of Jens Meyer there, but how is Germany uh, tackling this issue on a whole? 
Well, as I said, uh, the Office for the Protection of the Constitution has been quite active in declaring some parts of and some members of the AFD under observation. Uh, then again, uh, as we heard in the report, uh, various uh, members of various uh, professional associations and democratic institutions also saying we must be vigilant. Uh, mm. And the fact is, if if you look at the reporting on the AFD, you see an ongoing drumbeat of very disturbing headlines, ranging from the party's role in the anti-vaxxer movement, its attempts to get an exception from vaccination rules for some of its members serving in parliament, the use by two AFD politicians of the Telegram chat group to send subversive messages, and more. So there's definitely awareness, but that vigilance is absolutely crucial. Our chief political correspondent, Melinda Crane, thank you so much. Let's get some more headlines now. At least 25 people are reported dead in the Democratic Republic of Congo after a high-voltage power cable snapped and fell. The incident happened on the outskirts of the capital, Kinshasa. Authorities say the cable hit several homes and a market, killing several people instantly. U.S. actor and TV presenter Whoopi Goldberg has been suspended by the ABC network following her remarks about Jews and the Holocaust. Goldberg had said that the Holocaust was not about race, but about man's inhumanity to man. She later apologized after a backlash. And in Australia, two large bushfires have prompted evacuations on the outskirts of Perth. An emergency warning has been issued with blistering temperatures and high winds threatening to intensify the blazes in the coming days. The fires have burned through some 100 hectares of land since they began on Tuesday. Beijing will become the first city in history to host both the Summer and Winter Olympics when this year's Games officially begin on Friday. Almost 3,000 athletes will be competing for glory, but with health concerns and political tensions dominating headlines in the buildup, the sports are at risk of becoming a subplot at Beijing 2022. Billions have been invested into making Beijing 2022 an extravagant festival of competition, but the build-up has been about so much more than sport. Politics, for instance. Some nations, including the US and the UK, have declared a diplomatic boycott over human rights issues and will send competitors, but no ministers or officials. Meanwhile, organisers have threatened athletes with punishment for any behaviour or expression that they deem in breach of Chinese law and will expect the IOC to rigorously enforce its own rules limiting protests. In the Olympic Charter, there are very strict rules. So for the medal ceremonies and during the competitions, political protests are not permitted. On other occasions, like at press conferences or during interviews or on personal platforms, the athletes are free to express their opinions. But the athletes must be responsible for what they say. Due to COVID, athletes and journalists will be kept in secure bubbles, while no spectator tickets will be sold to the public. Organisers say health and safety are paramount. Of course, COVID countermeasures are still on top of our agenda. We have been making effective measures and everything is under control. Without a safe games, there would be no games. So we will make sure that the health and safety of all participants is our top priority.
A total of 32 new cases were reported by Olympic authorities on Wednesday alone. As expected, the pandemic is proving to be one of several headaches for the organisers of Beijing 2022. And we have Tom Ganoy from DW Sports with us for more on the story. Hi, Tom. Just how much will the pandemic disrupt these games? Uh, well, I mean, there's plenty of disruption, uh, you know, already so far, and I think it's probably reasonable to expect a fair bit more. Now, exactly how the pandemic disrupts your games depends on your standpoint. Now, obviously, for the athletes who are currently contained inside this COVID isolation bubble and subject to daily testing. That's obviously, you know, a, a big level of disruption that they wouldn't be used to from previous games. Of course, the worst case is for any of those to contract COVID because if that happens, if they're that unlucky, their games are over immediately. They'll be removed and placed in further isolation. For the reporters who are uh, covering the games from Beijing, there are also similar conditions. So they're in a separate bubble and also subject to frequent testing. Um, and for spectators, the disruption has already been almost total because there are no international spectators at these games. There was no public sale of tickets even for domestic visitors uh, within China. And though some spectators will be allowed, um, they'll be specially invited. It's slightly unclear exactly to whom those tickets will go. So, yeah, I mean, like we heard in the report, there were already 32 cases reported just today. So I think it's fair to expect, a, um, you know, a high continuing level of disruption. And on the political side, the report mentioned that diplomatic boycott from the US and the UK. How has China received that? Um, well, I mean, it's not a full boycott. As we heard, of course, they are going to still send competitors. But, um, of course, it, does, it doesn't sit well. The Chinese uh, government accused the USA of grandstanding, of political posturing and of undermining the games and the Olympic spirit. It's not the only sort of bone of political contention surrounding these games. Um, you know, there's also the case of Peng Shuai, the Chinese tennis star, who was not seen for two weeks after... Uh, accusing a high-ranking Chinese Communist Party official of sexual assault and then immediately recanted those allegations. So there are concerns about her welfare. Um, and of course, Taiwan will be competing as, the, as Chinese Taipei at these games. Um, it's another matter of controversy and political dispute because they were ordered to attend the opening and closing ceremonies after previously having said that they were going to stay away. So plenty of political um, yeah, co right. contention distracting from the sports themselves. We can't, we can't forget to talk about the sports. So what do you think we can expect from these games? Uh, yeah, well, of course, still plenty of sporting highlights. Now, it's a slightly slimmer programme, obviously, than a summer games, but still a lot to look forward to. One of the... Um, most hotly awaited appearances will be from the Jamaican bobsled team who are competing at their first Winter Games in 24 years. They've been training in the UK in Bath in part by pushing cars around uh, in car parks. Uh, they're at the Games at three bobsled events for the first time ever. Um, that starts Thursday next week. There are also um, new events such as the Ski Big Air, which is a mainstay of the X Games at the Olympics for the first time, and curling, which begins today, um, an iconic sport of the Winter Games. So, yeah, plenty to get excited about. A lot to look forward to. All right, Tom Ganoy from DW Sports, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Colombia is facing a dilemma over what to do with dozens of hippos. They were first brought there by notorious drug lord Pablo Escobar. He was killed by police almost 30 years ago, and since then, a growing population of hippos has been taking over the countryside near his former ranch. Our reporter traveled to Medellin in Colombia to discover why scientists and activists are divided over how to deal with the animals. A legacy of drug kingpin Pablo Escobar and a problem that has grown over the years. 
Colombia's hippos, now the largest population outside of Africa, which is their natural habitat. The so-called king of cocaine brought four of the pachyderms to his ranch. They've now multiplied to more than 90 and are causing havoc. They like it here, especially in high summer when the hippos gather. They swim out there and then reappear somewhere else. They rammed my boat and tipped it over because you can't see them at night. The males aren't so aggressive, but one hit my boat with a big bang. The hippos in Colombia are now the subject of public debate. Animal rights activists insist that the large mammals are completely innocent. But environmentalists criticize the effects the hippos have on the ecosystem and the indigenous fauna. Scientists support an end to the hippos. It sounds rather harsh, but we must clearly state that it must be done. I think that we from the academy must be able to explain why this must be done, even if no one is happy about it. No one wants to kill the hippos. But it's the lesser of two evils in this scenario. The environmental agency has started with harmless birth control, a contraceptive that works with both male and female hippos. The medicine, donated by U.S. animal welfare authorities, is given by injection. Now we must wait and see how the medicine works. Then we'll know if it really will lead to fewer calves. But young hippos often disappear even without medication. The semi-aquatic animals have achieved a kind of cult status among people who wish to imitate Pablo Escobar. Two of the little ones have already been taken away. They were sold. There are a lot of rich people in this country who want to have something like this. The last young hippo was brought to a man who is said to be very powerful. So now there's a market for these exotic animals in Colombia, and they lack natural enemies. That's why this is the largest hippo population outside of Africa where they are indigenous. And we have some uh, breaking news coming in to us. Uh, before we go, the European Commission has announced it will go ahead with a controversial green label for gas and nuclear energy. Officials say nuclear and natural gas projects can be labeled as sustainable investments under certain conditions, despite fierce criticism that these sources are not environmentally friendly. Green EU lawmakers are launching a campaign to block the move. We'll have more on that story for you at the top of the next hour. Let's get a quick recap of our top story. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the West of ignoring Moscow's concerns about regional security after the U.S. and NATO responded to demands over the Ukraine crisis. The U.S. and Russia have resumed talks with a phone call between Secretary of State Blinken and Foreign Minister Lavrov, but there has not been a breakthrough. Thank you for watching DW.
small island with big plans. La Réunion in the Indian Ocean. The French Overseas Department is making a complete transition to renewable energies. It's set to be completed by 2028. Eco Africa. Next on DW. Learn German with DW at any time, in any place. Using news, video novellas. Ich habe eine Zusage für das Praktikum. Songs to sing along to and download. Sie ist der Komparativ vom Superlativ. Man sieht sie oft in ihren Duden verteilt. Our varied courses, full of interactive exercises, are available at dw.com slash deutschlernen, on Facebook or in the App Store. Learn German for free with DW. Sometimes a seed is all you need to allow big ideas to grow. We're bringing environmental conservation to life with Learning Packs by Global Ideas. We will show you how climate change and environmental conservation is taking shape around the world and how we can all make a difference. Knowledge grows through sharing. Download it now for free. 